Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know I have a free on-demand masterclass called Five Steps to Writing a Novel Without Letting Perfectionism or Procrastination Get in the Way. In this free training, I cover things like where perfectionism comes from, how it's directly linked to procrastination, and what you can do right now to start making real progress with your writing. I also talk about the problem with popular plotting methods and how they can do more harm than good, especially if you're brand new to writing. And last but certainly not least, I share some of the most common mistakes I see writers make so you can avoid them and make this the year you finish your novel. If this sounds like something you're interested in, you can sign up for free at savannagilbo.com forward slash training. One more time, that's savannagilbo.com forward slash training to get your hands on this free masterclass. Tip number four is to focus the reader's attention elsewhere when you plant clues. And this one's really important because misdirection is not about withholding information. It's about giving the reader extra information and focusing their attention on that instead of on the truth. Welcome to the Fiction Writing Made Easy podcast. My name is Savannah Gilbo, and I'm here to help you write a story that works. I want to prove to you that writing a novel doesn't have to be overwhelming. So each week, I'll bring you a brand new episode with simple, actionable, and step-by-step strategies that you can implement in your writing right away. So whether you're brand new to writing or more of a seasoned author looking to improve your craft, this podcast is for you. So pick up a pen and let's get started. In today's episode, we're going to talk about red herrings. And this is one of my favorite topics because regardless of the genre you're writing in, there are probably some things you'll want to keep hidden from readers until the time is right to surprise them. But you can't just surprise readers with information that pops up out of the blue from nowhere. Instead, you need to do your best to play fair with readers so that everything makes sense when it comes time for the big reveal. And that means you'll need to plant a mixture of true clues so that you're always playing fair and false clues to lead readers down the wrong path in order to pull off a good surprise. These false clues are called red herrings, and that's what we're going to focus on in today's episode. So like I just mentioned, a red herring is anything that distracts readers and or your characters from an important truth. A red herring can also lead readers and or your characters to mistakenly expect one particular outcome over another. Red herrings can be anything from a character who seems evil or suspicious, an object that seems relevant or important, an event that seems to be significant to the story or the protagonist, or a clue that's placed by the antagonist or a secondary character that sends investigators down the wrong path. So essentially, red herrings are a type of foreshadowing. And if you've never heard the term foreshadowing before, it really just means all the different ways that a writer can give readers hints or clues about what's coming. And like I mentioned earlier, red herrings can be used in any genre. If your story has any kind of plot twist or surprise ending, you can use red herrings to distract the reader and even some of your characters from the truth of what's actually happening. It's also worth noting that different genres change how the reader views and responds to red herrings. So for example, in a true mystery, red herrings are used to make the reader incorrectly guess what has already happened. In a thriller or a horror novel, red herrings are used to make the reader incorrectly guess what is going to happen. So one more time, in a true mystery, red herrings are used to make the reader incorrectly guess what has already happened in the past. In a thriller or a horror novel, red herrings are used to make the reader incorrectly guess what is going to happen in the future. So now that we're all on the same page about what red herrings are, I'm going to walk you through a quick example of how red herrings are used in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. After that, I'll share my top five tips for writing red herrings into your own draft, and then we'll recap the key points from today's episode. 
In Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, both the reader and the characters are led to believe that Sirius Black is the story's main villain besides Lord Voldemort. So here's what readers learn about Sirius Black. First, we learn that 12 years ago, there was a Fidelis charm on the Potter's house to keep their location a secret. Someone betrayed their location to Voldemort, which directly led to James and Lily's murder. Most people believe that it was Sirius Black who betrayed James and Lily to Voldemort. Second, we learn that Sirius Black was in Godric's Hollow on the night of Harry's parents' murder. He was sentenced to life in Azkaban for the murder of 12 muggles and a wizard named Peter Pettigrew. The murder was said to be so violent and messy that all authorities could find of Peter Pettigrew was a blood-stained robe and a few fragments of a finger. Third, we learn that while in Azkaban, Sirius has been heard murmuring he's at Hogwarts in his sleep. It's believed that Sirius wants to kill Harry in order to finish what Voldemort started. Fourth, we learn that Sirius Black has never tried to escape from Azkaban prison until now. His escape coincides with the Weasleys' return home from Egypt. And fifth, we learn that Sirius Black is Harry Potter's godfather. So based on those five things, Sirius Black looks like a pretty convincing bad guy, right? But turns out Sirius Black isn't out to get Harry at all. He's actually trying to protect Harry from the person who's truly responsible for the death of Harry's parents, Peter Pettigrew. In other words, Sirius Black is a red herring. So now let's look at everything readers learn about Ron's pet scabbers and how each clue points to the truth about Peter Pettigrew. First, we learn that scabbers has been in the Weasley family for 12 years. Harry's parents were killed 12 years ago the night that Peter Pettigrew was quote-unquote murdered. Second, we learn that Scabbers has been acting strange ever since the Weasleys got home from Egypt. So after they got home, Peter Pettigrew learned that Sirius Black had escaped from Azkaban and that he's been muttering he's at Hogwarts, he being Peter Pettigrew, not Harry. Third, we learn that Ron buys a rat tonic to help Scabbers feel better, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work because Scabbers isn't actually a rat. He's a human living his life in his animagus form as a rat. Fourth, we learn that Scabbers is missing a toe on his front paw. And if you'll remember, the only thing that they found of Peter Pettigrew at the crime scene was his finger. Fifth, we learn that the sneakoscope goes off twice when Scabbers is around. First, when Ron's packing it up, and second, when Crookshanks is picking on Scabbers. The sneakoscope is a dark detector that lights up, spins, and whistles when someone is doing something untrustworthy nearby. Finally, we learn that Scabbers is constantly hiding, missing, or running away from Ron. So Peter Pettigrew, as Scabbers, knows that Sirius Black is looking for him, so he's doing whatever he can to get away from Hogwarts. Now, as you can see, J.K. Rowling gave readers all the clues needed to figure out that Scabbers is actually Peter Pettigrew hidden in plain sight. Wherever one of these clues was laid, Rowling used different techniques to distract the reader from the truth. For example, when the sneakoscope goes off, Crookshanks had just been chasing Scabbers around the room. Readers might interpret the sneakoscope sounding off because Crookshanks is quote-unquote misbehaving, or they might dismiss this bit of information entirely, chalking the whole thing up to typical cat behavior. There are, of course, more clues than what I've laid out here, but hopefully you can now see how red herrings work. So now let's take a look at some tips for writing red herrings into your own draft. Tip number one is to incorporate the red herring into the fabric of your story. Red herrings aren't something to be pulled out of your hat when the plot lacks tension, excitement, or conflict. Like most storytelling techniques, red herrings have to serve a purpose and feel like they're an organic part of the story. Not only that, but they need to be logical and have some kind of impact on the story, too. 
So in the above example from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Sirius Black, a.k.a. our red herring, plays a huge role in the story. So if you took him out of the plot, the whole story would collapse and it just wouldn't work. Tip number two is to give your innocent characters motivation, means, and opportunity. So if you're planning to use a character as a red herring, you'll need to convince readers that this person could legitimately be guilty. To do this, you could create an innocent character that either benefits from the crime, had the means or opportunity to commit the crime, has a strong motive, or all of the above. So in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Sirius Black is widely believed to have been the Potter's secret keeper, which gives him both the means and the opportunity to betray their location to Voldemort. Tip number three is to give the reader no obvious reason to suspect your guilty character. So in contrast to your innocent character having a motive, means, and opportunity to commit a crime, you'll want to give the real culprit no obvious reason or no obvious way to be involved in the crime. To do this, you could have a guilty character who is acting strange, but the protagonist can't put his or her finger on why they're acting strange, or at least not yet. You could also discredit the guilty character by giving him or her a personality or a skill set that doesn't feel typical of someone bad or someone who's capable of committing a crime. So in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Peter Pettigrew is described by Professor McGonagall as being a stupid and foolish boy and as a less than average student. So because of that, nobody's really going to believe or expect that Peter Pettigrew was capable of not only betraying and murdering his friends, but of siding with Lord Voldemort too. Plus, everybody thinks he's dead. And that's what makes this surprise even more enjoyable for readers. Tip number four is to focus the reader's attention elsewhere when you plant clues. And this one's really important because misdirection is not about withholding information. It's about giving the reader extra information and focusing their attention on that instead of on the truth. So in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, almost every clue that points to Scabbers being more than just a pet rat is easily skipped over because of the way J.K. Rowling plants clues in her story. Sometimes she diverts readers' attention away from the truth by hiding clues within a list of things. So, for example, the creators of the Marauders map, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Other times she distracts readers with action or high emotion. So, for example, when Crookshanks is chasing scabbers around the room and Hermione and Ron get into a fight. Things like that. So the point here is you don't want to hold information back from the reader. Instead, you want to figure out a way to not only discreetly plant the truth in your story, but to distract the reader from that truth with something interesting too. Tip number five is to always play fair with the reader. So when someone reads your story, they are giving you their trust. They're expecting that you will tell them the truth. They build on each bit of information you give them, trying to understand the big picture and figure out what's going to happen next. Tricking the reader by misleading them is fun for both you, the writer, and them, the reader, but if you fool them by leaving out information they would legitimately have expected to be given, then you're just messing with them. So in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, J.K. Rowling gave readers all the clues they needed to figure out Scabbers' true identity. When the truth was revealed, readers were able to connect all the dots because all the clues were there from the start. So be sure to always play fair with the reader by giving them the truth, but by diverting their attention elsewhere. If you can pull this off, you're going to create a story that sticks with readers until the end of time, much like J.K. Rowling did. So those are my top five tips for writing red herrings into your story. And if you're thinking that red herrings don't sound that easy to write, then you are correct. 
They are hard to pull off because they have to tread a fine line between being visible and invisible, and they have to be obvious enough that most readers are going to pick up on them, but subtle enough that the reader believes them and then follows that false trail. So no, they're not that easy to craft, but when done well, they can help you create awesome plot twists that surprise even the most clever of readers. And personally, they are one of my all-time favorite storytelling techniques. So with that being said, let's do a quick recap of today's key points. Key point number one is that red herrings are false clues that distract readers and or your characters from an important truth. They can also lead readers and or your characters to mistakenly expect one particular outcome over another. Key point number two is that to write red herrings effectively, you need to incorporate them into the fabric of your plot so that they feel organic and have some kind of impact on the rest of your story. They are not something to be pulled out of your hat when your plot lacks tension, excitement, or conflict. Key point number three is to give your innocent character the motivation, means, and opportunity necessary to commit whatever crime occurs in your story if you want to use a character as a red herring. So in other words, you'll need to convince readers that your innocent character could legitimately be guilty. Key point number four is that you'll want to give the reader no obvious reason to suspect your guilty character. So in contrast to your innocent character having a motive, means, and opportunity to commit a crime, you'll want to give the real culprit no obvious reason or no obvious way to be involved in the crime. Key point number five is that you'll want to focus the reader's attention elsewhere when you do plant clues in your story. And this one's really important because misdirection is not about withholding information. It's about giving the reader extra information and then focusing their attention on that instead of on the truth. And finally, key point number six is to always play fair with your readers. So tricking the reader by misleading them is really fun for both you and your readers. But if you fool them by leaving out important information that they would legitimately have expected to be given, then you're just messing with them and you're likely going to ruin their reading experience and lose their trust. So always, always, always play fair with your readers. So that's it for today's show. As always, I want to thank you so much for tuning in and showing your support. If you want to check out any of the links I mentioned in this episode, you can find them over at savannagilbo.com forward slash podcast. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the show because there's going to be another brand new episode coming out next week. If you're an Apple user, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to leave a quick rating and review. Your ratings and reviews tell iTunes that this is a podcast that's worth listening to. And in turn, that helps this show get in front of more fiction writers just like you. So that's it for today's show. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, happy writing.